have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way down to Hello and welcome to the Off Court Podcast. It is a podcast about the history and political economy of sports. We are on the Harbinger Media Network. We're produced by the Mine Refinery. My name is Aton. And my name is uh, definitely not COVID Abdul. Um, we're, we're keeping that in, Kyle. Yeah, we're... Uh, we. <laughs> I'm jeweling too hard for this podcast. <laughs> uh, full disclosure, this is our second attempt at recording this. Like we were extremely tired and stoned last time and mm-hmm. uh like the it it collapsed. Um but uh yeah, we we did this for you actually, the listener. We are recording this episode as a uh, Spotify wrapped and all the streaming services give you your stats for the year. Um Aton, you did post on Twitter that your most listened to music was uh too embarrassing to post but yeah it was actually too embarrassed to post the listen count for podcasts um spotify didn't even provide me with my listen count for music because i guess i just only want voices in my head throughout uh 2020 i don't want to be alone um i didn't reveal it because i thought this was a lot but then some people had revealed to me their numbers i'm at 42,941 minutes of podcast this year but I've seen some six, I've recently seen some six figure uh digits so I I don't know if I'm actually that bad but I just I thought I needed a friend this entire time and I thought I was going through something. I was also in the top 1 percentile of of listeners for Future the artist. So <laughs> t- like take that as you future will. Future and Come Town? Yeah, exactly. Well, actually Come Town isn't on the Spotify app for some fucking reason. So it was a lot I of I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why too. It was a lot of Chapo and a lot of uh, Raptors over everything and a lot of uh a lot of sports because that stuff just, you know, it's it's uh sports podcasts are heroin for me basically. So I like listen to the Hollinger and Duncan podcast to fall asleep because you because um, you hate yourself, yeah, yeah, because I hate myself. Um, but there's an episode called uh, "The Worst Teams of the Decade" bracket where they just Ooh. grab the worst uh, 2010 to 2020 teams. But for the last six months, I've been listening to this episode because for whatever reason, like I'm interested in the content, but it gives me like immediate narcolepsy. So I'll, like put in my earbuds fall asleep throw or like go to fall asleep throw this on listen to five minutes and i'll wake up i've been listening to this bracket basically minute by minute now for six months i'm stupid because i queue up like four podcasts i'm like oh yeah it's gonna take me a while to fall asleep but i always start with that one because i'm like yeah it's in progress but then you fall asleep to it and it continues to run how do you know to where to start again i usually when i fall asleep to a podcast the next day it goes in the garbage afterwards because i'm just not going to figure out where i start where i fell asleep because it's good because i can track where i am in the bracket right because the first half is a rundown of the teams and the second half is a bracket and i'm just like okay i remember who won this bracket i can go pause here start again um yeah it's a weird behavior but it it really does work for me my yeah, my most listened to artist this year, unfortunately, was Jack Harlow. <laughs> oh my god! Because um, I listened to Tyler Harrow like four hundred times when it came out, and I've been like, "What's poppin'?" has been in my rotation a lot. Just the biggest white fucking anthem of the entire year. You really, you really had to to do that to us, huh? Yeah. During, and- the, year, during the year of Black Lives Matter, you had to to bump the mo the whitest rap song ever made about the whitest basketball. Well, actually. Maybe the blackest, whitest basketball player <laughs> yeah, ever. Yeah, so, so never mind. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, also, like suspiciously high, my most listened to songs was uh, "White Iverson" by Post Malone. Yeah, that is a, a weird. Like five years, a little too late. Yeah, it's a great song though. I I will say it it does bang. Um, and I I once got ratio like got a legendary ratio on Twitter for replying to something live posting tweeted uh by oh, saying yeah. i would rather listen to uh post malone than the beatles which is by the way 100 percent true the beatles are so fucking boring but uh yeah it it got more comments than her tweet did mm. <laughs> of people calling me the r word um oh i i missed that time in the internet when the practice praxis kids would call you the r word actually that was a simpler time for literally just saying that you would rather listen to a, a modern rapper over the fucking a band that was popular 50 years ago. I will I will genuinely say I and maybe this is a hot the hottest of music takes, but I genuinely 
think Post Malone is better than the Beatles. I fucking hate the Beatles, man. They're so... Te- they're the most tedious band I've ever listened to. Yeah, I'm just, like, fucking mask off on my shitty taste here. Um, You know what? I'm not going to argue with you, because I, I did... I had the very, like, a very um, stereotypical, like, Jewish um, boomer dad, like, intro into the Beatles, and it's very much ingrained in me. But also, how can I deny that? Like, I, I haven't heard a song that bangs as hard as White Iverson, and I've heard every single Beatles song. So I, I can't really argue with you at the same time. Yeah, I'm at a loss know, here. White Iverson, <laughs> like the ring I never won. That's some fucking yeah. poetry in motion there. Um, but speaking of, I guess, white things and white sports anthems, uh, if you will, I think this transition was somehow better uh, when I was uh, – off of 14 hours of being awake and super stoned on Wednesday when we recorded. But we are going to be talking about hockey nationalism in the country that we live in, the country of Canada. And for the most part, we're going to talk, obviously, about the bad kind of national of displays of nationalism as we like to on this pod. Um, and as I have mentioned, um, I think various times now on this podcast, I am technically an immigrant. Uh, my parents are Canadian, but they moved to Israel before I was born. Um, and then we moved back here when I was 13. Um, so I'm going to use this opportunity to fully complete my citizenship and prove that I care about hockey in some way, except I'm going to just shit on hockey. Um, but I just wanted to start with this um, little anecdote, and I want to hear your experience um, as a, uh, you know, you're, you're second generation, I guess, Canadian, right? Yeah, I am. My parents came here. I was born here. My parents had this like weird obsession with, but before we even moved here, with making sure I was involved in extracurricular sport. Um, like when we first got to Canada, basically they they forced me. Well, up until we got to Canada, by the way, like it got to the point I, I started with every normal ass sport, but by the last year we were living in Israel, they were making me go sailing. They were making me learn uh, capoeira at one point, like table tennis. They just kind of like. They they were obsessed with making sure I was somehow involved Sailing in sports. Sailing is a weird one. Sailing yeah. is like, were they expecting you to, I, like, to, I don't know, be like one of those British people on a fucking schooner or something? You know what I mean? Or, like, I or, don't... Maybe they were like, that's the only thing he's going to be able to do if he's conscripted into the army, so we should give him some kind of skill so they don't just make him a pencil pusher i mean also for context i lived on the mediterranean i lived in ashkelon which is about an hour uh south of tel aviv on the coast so sailing was a thing if you will and my parents didn't want me to be a surfer because you know that was that wasn't that was too dangerous yeah it was uh (laughs) it was too palestinian yeah, exactly. It was too fucking, it was too much like those guys that actually were half an hour south of us in their little closed, their little uh, gated community that I'm not allowed to go to. But I wasn't, I didn't really know much about until I moved here. Weird. But anyways, not to go off too much on Israel, but the point is, is that um, when I moved here, my parents, like, because they were at that point obsessed with making me try every kind of sport, they're like, the least you're going to do when we're in Canada is you're going to learn how to skate. So they made me um, learn how to fucking get on the ice when I was 13 years old amongst a bunch of fucking six-year-olds, which was a very scarring, very emasculating experience. Did you have to do anything like that? Or did, did your parents even care about if you knew how to skate? Uh, I went to a private school um, where the skating lessons were part of the phys ed curriculum and you like it was part of your tuition or whatever. So like I did a couple of sk- I was horribly bad at skating, but I did a bunch of skating lessons and I could like do that. You know, I'm talking about the duck walk that they get to get you to like, uh, yes, start skating. Yes. Yeah, no, I was terrible at sports. But my parents uh, insisted that I like take sports. So I was good at tennis. I will say that I was actually a hell of a tennis player uh, until I you know, gained weight, discovered porn on my computer. But oh, like, I was I was going to say, if you were a cool uh, tennis player when, and you happened to be svelte, as svelte as you are now at the time, you would have gone on to be one of the coolest tennis players ever. Just like a, a svelte Pakistani, just like... My parents didn't roll me in like white people taekwondo with like, you know, the divorce trainer and 400 kids first three months free <laughs> if you buy the oh, yeah. uniform. I think we mentioned this Sensei Dale or something. Yeah, or Sensei sen- Sensei Jim or Sensei Dale or whatever, yeah. who just made you do push-ups and like <laughs> definitely had like divorced dad energy and like I did that for a couple of years. You're um, all the ch- you're all the sons I never had because my marriage ended too early. <laughs> <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah, my parents 
the two things my parents made me do for years was taekwondo um and abacus classes because they thought it would make me better at math (laughs) they thought i would i could like um use the fucking abacus it would make me good at math because i'm terrible at math um yeah yeah, we we take it down to the basics i mean you would be either the lamest or the coolest fucking kid if every time we had to do simple fucking calculations you had to you had to bust out your back like something that looked like a backgammon case but actually had your massive story calculator this is something i haven't told you this was like when i was 13 um and they start abacus kids off usually when they're four or five so I was the oldest person. I was like that Robin Williams movie with Jack. Um, I was the oldest uh-huh. person in this like kindergarten ass class of abacus kids, all of whom were Chinese, which is really funny because like I I'm also Asian, but I stuck stick out a lot. And my parents would make sure I took the fucking abacus to school with me, like they would make sure it was in my backpack. <laughs> you know, I had to wear a uh, I had to wear a uh, ma- not a mouth guard. Sorry, I had to wear a retainer on my face throughout three years of my elementary school life, but I and I thought that was the most embarrassing thing that could happen to a child, but no, not anymore. I think if I had to carry around my abacus to school, to high school, from the class I just took with a bunch of six-year-old Chinese kids, I think I would also I won't, be a little uh, bit more embarrassed. I won't harp on the abacus too much, but like, I, I was telling my mom for years, like, this thing is not working for me, and she just wouldn't believe me. And she was like, this thing is not working for me, mom. Like, I, I hate this. I hate being, like, the oldest person in a class of babies learning how to use the abacus. Your mom just needed to get dunked on by one of her peers, basically. Yeah, what, exactly. What, what you had to say had, had meant nothing. I mean, I wish that happened to me when my parents were sending me to skating classes, but they wouldn't have added the, the uh, caveat that my son is also 13 years old, and he's amongst kids that are half his age while this is happening. And they are physically... Uh, beating him in uh, in just like technical ice skating skills um, <laughs> when he had just when he had just moved here. Um, there's actually like cute organizations like Hockey for Youth, which specifically like train teenagers from immigrant families that never got a chance to learn how to skate at any age, like even like you know 18 year olds and shit like that. But I guess I'm just my parents are Canadian and I'm white, and I actually did just automatically get my citizenship. I didn't have to do any fucking hockey-related test, um, so I probably wouldn't have been allowed. But there is that opportunity for immigrant families. Um, I just want to point that out. Um, but yeah, because I'm from Israel, I just want to say, like, I guess I've always had this contrarian motivation to not like the sort of nationalist sport. Well, because I think I also like just never really understood why either sport represented us. Maybe we can talk about it in another future episode, but for some reason, soccer has been deemed the, 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 um, the national sport of Israel, even though like it obviously only has to do with its proximation to fucking Europe and, uh, the middle East where soccer is just the most popular fucking sport. There's nothing Israel, the formation of Israel and Jews has nothing to do with, uh, soccer. But then I had always the same sort of confusion with hockey, to be honest, when I had moved here, I didn't really understand other than the fact that we're in a cold climate and there's ice, why uh, this super violent sport with fucking sticks and pucks uh, that, uh, again, just didn't really click for me. It was so popular um, and why it came to represent Canada so strongly. And I uh, discovered uh, quite a bit as I did this. I might be telling some hockey nerds things they already know, but I think actually I parsed some details that hockey nerds might have either glossed over or didn't read the specific academic journals I read that uh, touch on some of the more disgusting fucking details about hockey's uh, history. So Hell yeah. Let's fucking get into it. Um, so yeah, the basic concept of playing with sticks and balls to score goals dates back actually centuries in Europe with different variations, like all the way back to the fucking 1300s, basically. Um, usually it's with a puck or a ball, and it was usually obviously played on a field because there wasn't really a lot of ice in England. Uh, in the 1700s, British soldiers and immigrants to Canada, two newly formed Canada and the United States, brought their stick and ball games with them and then just kind of played them on ice naturally. This wasn't the formation of hockey, but it was sort of just the early beginnings of it. Um, I want to read this qu- very short quote from an essay by Roche Carrier called Hockey Canada's Game, which you can specifically find in the Vancouver 2010 Official Souvenir Program on you page 42. What a great place know, to find it. I don't know how I got to this, but quote, while away their boredom and to stay in shape, they, the European colonial soldiers in North America, would play it on the frozen river lakes. The British English played bandy 
The Scots played shinty and golf. The Irish played hurling, while the Dutch soldiers pursued Ken Jagen. Curiosity led some to try lacrosse, which is the only sport I really recognized. Each group learned <laughs> the game from the others. The most daring ventured to play on skates. All these contributions nourished a game that was evolving. Hockey was invented by all these people, all the cultures, all the individuals. Hockey is the conclusion of all these beginnings. Other than all the funny sport names I just wanted to read, I just wanted to demonstrate how hockey is kind of like the 23andMe you get when you're a wasp and you're like, I want to find out if I have like anything cool in my blood, but it's just like Germany, Denmark, England, France, 2% Neanderthal. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, we can see it as, a, as an example of how Canadian culture is extremely influenced by European culture and traditions, specifically by the British and French. But as we will discuss, there is a really important Indigenous influence to the sport that I don't see anything about for the most part. Um, so in the same area of colonialism in the 1700s that we mentioned, the Mi'kmaq First Nations people of the Canadian Maritimes also had stick and ball games. They just happened to have the shit. It was a little bit different than the British and French. Uh, the uh, sticks for the games that were played by the British uh, during colonial times were actually eventually made by the Mi'kmaq, who they found to have like better, more rigid sticks. So simultaneously, the colonizers are like importing their version of the game while the indigenous who they believe that they're like smarter than these primitive people are playing basically the exact same, happen to be playing the exact same game on a different continent with better materials at the exact same and time. And a cooler game because they had teams of thousands. Sometimes they would use the games to attack each other. They would have pretend fucking games to like either attack like different tribes or also to attack the fucking Europeans, which I have a little uh, blurb about that in a moment. But I actually want to discuss here the transition this transition from the stick and ball games like cricket and curling and all the other stupid shit that I'm I said shinty I think or something shinty doesn't isn't real I refuse no, to believe any of this shit is real uh like that, hurling I've heard of but that's what that's what happens when I hurt my shin really bad I get a shinty um the transition so there was a transition from these like stick and ball games to lacrosse which is, as some people know, can, used to be considered Canada's national game, to hockey. And that transition is important because it's like it's not only rife with Canadian uh, ideology, but it's also just more appropriation of uh, the Indigenous games that were played in Canada. Um, so I'm just going to read like some rephrased quotes from a great academic journal called Imagining Canadian Identity Through Sports, uh, which helped me uh, discover a lot of new details for this research. Uh, so in the early 19th century Canada, attempts were well underway to introduce important European games such as cricket and curling to a nation only beginning to take shape. However, in its earliest stages, organized sport was something suitable for only, quote, gentlemen and not worthy of the working class or ethnic minorities. Middle class reformers advocated a more disciplined and rational approach to leisure, seeking to replace irrational working class recreations with more genteel activities when they believed which they believed were more important for the improvement of middle-class youth in the new colonies. Um, it was not until later in the century that schools and churches began to take a more active role in introducing structured forms of physical activity to Canadians of various classes and ethnic backgrounds. The intent of making sport and physical activity more socially democratic was threefold, to acquire levels of control over increased amounts of leisure time made possible by industrialization and shorter work week, to reduce class conflict by enabling male partic participants of various backgrounds to compete on an equal playing field and to build a physically fit yet subordinate workforce, ensure maximum levels of industrial production. In short, advocating for an institutionalized sport served as an important means of reproducing a Victorian social order in Canada where young men learn to be honorable and genteel gentlemen. I love this part about like men, let, letting men of various backgrounds just like take out this, their newfound rage of being abused <laughs> by like new forms of like production basically out on the playing field. Uh, we can make the workforce more subordinate, basically, yeah, by letting them like kick the shit out of each other. You're playing with the with the kid whose hand has been like mauled inside a cotton <laughs> yeah. mill, and like it's been stretched out. <laughs> therefore, he's your best goalie or whatever. Like, yeah, but he, he he has a callus on his head now from playing from playing curling for so long. So he's still useful, <laughs> you know. The uh, yeah, like it's it's pretty well accepted that sports emerged as a. Um, as a like stand-in for warfare and stuff like that. But as a, I, I do love the, the like industrialization of it being like, it's not just a stand-in for warfare anymore. It's also a way to keep our, our prospective, you know, military draft prospects and like workers healthy and stuff like that. Like that's, I've never considered that, but that is. 
yeah, and it's fair. also like it's also because they just had more time for leisure. So I guess these like lords and you can't let them get just, fat while they're having no, no, no. having fun, right? Yeah, they can't be just chilling. You know, the, the they can't just be having vibes. So this is where lacrosse comes in. I promised we would get to it, and this is it. Um, it's been debated debated whether hockey or lacrosse should be considered. Canada's national sport. And the reason for this is that lacrosse had an important nationalist context. So back to some of my rephrased quotes, uh, the development of controlled sport took an important turn by the middle 19th century with a new emergent class led by Montreal born dentist, George Bears, George Bears, who was responding to impositions of British nationalism in Canada with curly, curling and cricket being the dominant sports that represented Anglo, Anglo rule of Canada at the time before confederation. Beer's role in Canadian sport history was that of a romantic nationalist. As a French colonialist, Beer's contended with English imperialism. This is when he turned to indigenous sport as a means of portraying the nation he saw. Quote, what a better place to look than Canada's first people's game of Bagot Way. Filled with speed, violence, and skill, the game appeared to best embody the harsh and grueling existence of Canadian natives, as well as the trials of early Canadian settlers in this new and untamed land. The game Bagot Way, renamed Lacrosse by French settlers, was played by many First Nations across North America prior to European contact. It proved to be a game that both fascinated and repulsed early, early settlers. Some English Europeans were less interested in First Nations leisurely activities, largely because of puritanical sensibilities that tended to perceive all forms of play as wasteful and unproductive. So it is not surprising that English observations of lacrosse disparaged the violence, yet negative comments were often counted with admirations for First Nations players who exuded remarkable sportsmanship and respect for their opponents. One late 18th century account reads, the Chippewas played with so much passion that they frequently wound each other, and sometimes a bone is broken. But notwithstanding these incidents, there never appears to be any spite or deliberate exertions of strength to affect them, nor any disputes ever happen between the parties. So we respect the savages for their savage ways, but we also steal their fucking game, right? And we civilize um, it, right? Like, that's that's the history of, of most cultural institutions, but we never talk about that with hockey specifically like hockey always seems like this you know sort of uh i know it's not but like you know we oftentimes frame hockey as like this like politically ambivalent for all canadians exercise that doesn't have a history of like you know dominion or whatever it's like sports are actually some of the biggest (laughs) places in which like cultural dominion is is articulated like colonialism is articulated particularly yeah. neocolonialism but in this case it's a uh, classic colonialism it's how ideology is instilled in a very natural but yet as we're going to see in a bit a bit of an insidious way um it's it's funny we have the truth and reconciliation report but I don't really know much about any of indigenous influence or any appropriation of indigenous games until Basically, I like happen to get assigned this topic for our fucking <laughs> podcast. You know what I mean? So that says a lot. Um, before we uh talk a little bit more about the indigenous side of things, uh, we got to wrap up George Beers, um, and how did the violence of like the sport aid his efforts? Um, well, with more gazing at the savage native, obviously, but also actually some badass shit from the First Nati- Nations, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, so back to the article. For young French males, the rough nature of the sport was appealing, and as a result, these man- men became enamored with not only the game of lacrosse, but with its participants as well. Perhaps the most popular, pop- most popularly known lacrosse event was a legendary contest between two First Nations tribes in 1763 which was actually an ambush disguised as a sporting contest. According to Alexander Alexander Henry's account of the contest, the tribes used lacrosse as a means for staging an attack on a British fort. In the middle of the game, the ball was specifically thrown near picks of the fort. The shill cries of the ball players suddenly changed to ferocious war cries. The warriors had hidden hatchets concealed under their uniforms. Half of them attacked the unassuming spectators watching the game while the others rushed the fort. No, that's fucking awesome. Like, and again, like, you see this a lot of times, like, in Europe and stuff like that. Soccer games are a front for people to go... (laughs) Right, like tear shit up and stuff like that, right? Like, it's not surprising, but the way those things are framed, like the way soccer hooliganism is framed compared to something like this and like uh, historical context is also like very interesting where it's like, ah, these these young men just have aggression they need to get out. Society has failed them. And it's like here, it's like, look at the savages. They can't even let people enjoy a game or whatever. Exactly. But that's what the British thought. But 
there was like th- this became legendary status for the sport, and it com- it made a, a perfect vehicle for George Beer's like nationalist agenda, which is another example of oh, yes, what you're saying. He's appropriating the fucking the 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 savage native rage for his own anti-British rule. Um, and this is because the game ran counter to British bourgeois sensibilities that understood sport to be refined and gentlemanly, one that could ultimately serve as a breeding ground for proper British values. Instead, lacrosse was a display of rugged, brutal, and aggressive behaviors that was said to embody what it meant to be a Canadian settler in this unforgiving territory. Thus, Beers called on Canadians to refrain from the from engaging in the imperial pursuit of cricket and take up lacrosse as a new national game, in effect reading Canada of foreign influences and acquainting the new population with the soul of the nation, which is effectively the soul of the indigenous people that he was basically fucking gazing at. Uh, but nevertheless, um, we just see how hockey inspired... Hockey was inspired by colonization and then the French-British colonizer beef directly, which we're going to talk about, obviously, later with uh, Maurice Richard. And yeah, he never addresses the appropriation of the indigenous game exactly. Uh, Or sorry, George actually does end up addressing the appropriation of the indigenous game. Um, And they got some quotes from him, I guess, from an old fucking old ass letter in this article. Um, And I think it sums up Canada's bullshit pretty nicely. Uh, Beers makes no apologies for appropriating an aboriginal game and promoting it as a national pastime. Instead, he sees the appropriation itself as an accurate depiction of European presence in Canada and argues, just as we claim as Canadians, the rivers and the lakes and the land once owned exclusively by Indians. So we now claim their field game as the national field game of our dominion. George's propaganda was enormously effective to the extent that a National Lacrosse Association was formed, the first national sporting body in Canada, and lacrosse began to be touted by many as Canada's official national game. What do you think of that quote, by the way? Uh, it's insane. And I do, we did grow up like being told that lacrosse is Canada's national game, but we were never told why, or like we never actually play lacrosse. Like that's something they teach you in, in Canadian schools is like, oh yeah, lacrosse is technically our like national game or whatever. Um you know, just like just again, like, you know, this land is technically not ours. Um and shit like that. But yeah, like we And never... I guess that's why I uh, sorry to cut that's you off. Okay. Um my bad. Uh, I'm off now two green teas. That's why um it's so obvious why they don't teach us this in school, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it like it it sucks cuz like lacrosse is actually I don't know if you've ever played. I've I've played a few like pickup games with friends who are actual lacrosse players. It's a it's a baller sport to play. Like the, a lot of the reason I think it it doesn't have as much of a foothold is like aesthetic more than anything. It's much harder to follow a game of lacrosse on a TV or even in person uh, unless you're the one playing it. Yeah, I guess when I first moved here, I saw a lacrosse game and and yeah, I had no fucking idea what was going on, but they did play a lot of ACDC. I will tell you that. It is also a sport where unlike hockey, which is for little babies, cross-checking is completely legal in lacrosse. Uh, it is a is an absolutely brutal sport. Like yeah, I don't know if you've ever met lacrosse players either, but like they are they are maybe the most built people you'll ever meet cuz it's like they're very thin, but all the mass they do have is basically just pure muscle it's just a function of how that game like trains you and like the physique you have to be in we need to start the lacrosse to ufc pipeline right now oh fuck Um, yeah but yeah so as we can see i mean and it seems to maybe continue actually i don't know if it's toxic but definitely the masculinity part uh of lacrosse is quite important here native culture appropriation and colonial infighting so it's becoming clear that hockey and lacrosse really are the most canadian things ever but speaking of we haven't really gone to hockey Right. Um, so they're they're at this time, around this time, the casuals of the stick and ball games are inspired by indigenous tribes who pl- tribes who played their games specifically on the ice, like the people that are just trying to play lacrosse on the ice. This is this starts the slow popularization of a game called hockey, and this uh, is supposedly started from a, a game in Montreal. There was the first indoor hockey game in Montreal on March third, eighteen seventy five. Um, it was played at Montreal's Victoria Skating Rink, organized by James Creighton, Yale University student from Halifax, Nova Scotia. By 1893, there were almost 100 teams in Montreal alone playing this exact style of the game. In addition, there were now leagues forming around Canada. And in 1910, the National Hockey Association was formed in Montreal. But before we gloss over it, like, how did that transition exactly happen? Wait, uh, so, like, before you go, 
yeah. two of the biggest sports in North America came out of fucking McGill University, really? Yeah. Like hockey yeah. and basketball, both. Oh, right. James Nason. Yeah, he was a yes. McGill guy. He, he graduated from McGill. That's actually crazy. They Listen, if I was the dean at McGill, I would never stop making that the like backbone of what our fucking university was right. about. McGill, the home of basketball and hockey. That's fucking crazy. The birthplace of basketball and hockey. That's actually a very, very astute, very uh, nice uh, byline for the school. Um but yeah, and um, so the, there is a transit. So hockey's just kind of happening at this time, clearly because it's very similar to lacrosse and just happens to take place on, on ice. But there is like a, a nationalist sort of move to go from lacrosse to hockey in terms of it being the, not only the most popular sport in the country, but for it to represent us. Um, so in the early 1900s, Canadian lacrosse sporting officials of the time were actually trying to make the game a little bit more exclusive. They and uh, this because this is because there were so many other leagues that they were trying to compete with, and they also saw themselves again as the nationalist sport of the time. They saw amateur athletics in Canada as a vehicle for doing this. So I'm going back to the article I was reading from. Amateur athletics in Canada did not merely function as a means of ensuring athletes engage in sports in a gentlemanly manner, but served as a discriminatory discriminatory system that prevented undesirable players from playing. In 1909, the National Amateur Athletic Union was formed in Canada. National Lacrosse Association League officials decided to make it, quote, an amateur association, which restricted it to those players who fit under the definition of amateur. An amateur was conveniently defined by the Amateur Athletic Union of Canada as someone who, quote, had never competed for money prize, never skated, bet, with, or against any professional for any prize, or one who never taught, pursued, or assisted in the practice of athletic exercises as a means of obtaining livelihood. The stipulations were highly restrictive and deliberate in design. So they basically wanted, like, rich the people. 1900s started, they wanted nobody by rich people, and they wanted to like, continue this Victorian bullshit, basically, with lacrosse. By maintaining its exclusive membership, the National Lacrosse Association forced potential lacrosse players to pursue alternative sporting options. Other team sport leagues of the time, like baseball, football, and hockey, were not as resistive to the influences of professionals, and thus they provided working class and ethnic minority players alternatives to play in these sports and be financially compensated at the same time. So, like, lacrosse was the dying boomer sport of the time, clearly, but I also do want to say that probably when they say eth- ethnic minorities, they might mean, Indigenous like, people. the Irish. Oh, yeah, and Italians. And, or the, and the, and the cat, yeah, I think that's what they maybe mean in these in these quotes. <laughs> Actually, that's because fair. as well, that's it's Montreal too, right? That yeah, yeah exactly, and and also as we're gonna see, uh, the way Indigenous people experienced uh, hockey in the 1900s was very different from the way white people did. Uh, but yeah, hockey was chosen out of the three, I think, also for fairly obvious reasons between hockey basketball and football just literally in terms of where we live but while baseball and football did attract many of the players these sports did not possess the symbolic and literal value found in lacrosse instead it was hockey that are canadian in origin and character an amalgam of modern and vernacular sporting pastimes hockey resembled lacrosse in design and in the matter as played but it wasn't just the fact that it was lacrosse remember we're talking like World War One era, hockey was aggressive and often violent, providing men the opportunity to display this emergent notion of masculinity of the time. At a symbolic level, it was played on a frozen landscape, perfectly embodying yada yada what fucking it is to be Canadian. Thus, hockey provided all that lacrosse entailed, but without the description of amateurism, and by the 1920s, succeeded in becoming Canada's national sport. The distinction hockey received as being a rough sport also served as a means for Canadians to display their proficiency, making hockey a valuable vehicle for not only expressing national identity, but also in displaying traditional masculinity. Hockey displayed men who were perceived to be stoic, courageous, and physically dominant, precisely the same images of masculinity valued in First Nations culture. These historically... At this, these historic attitudes attracted Canadians to hockey as a game provided Canadian males with an identifiable image outside of a British Victorian framework. But yeah, the same way that hockey is used to instill Canadian nationalist ideology in young Canadian boys and quote ethnic minorities of the Irish and Italian, it does this. They, they, Canada has done the exact same thing with the First Nations people. Um, this is uh, are some rephrased quotes from a research paper by Dr. Sam McKechnie at Queen's University. 
called Decolonializing Sport, and it includes information I've never read before in my entire life. Hockey is a vehicle through which Canadians make meaning out of winter and thereby manufacture senses of belonging in northern landscape. I apologize, by the way, for a lot of the quotes I read constantly repeat this thesis. I try to cut it down every single time. Um, as hockey becomes valorized as a natural byproduct of Canadian lands, purveyors of the game promote senses of native Canadian identity among those who play it. And in the process of obfuscating or denying differential senses of belonging amongst First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people who may or may not self-identify as Canadian. Complicating matters further, hockey was employed historically in residential schools and elsewhere as a tool of colonial social engineering designed to encourage Indigenous youth to shed connections with Indigenous cultural values and to self-identify as Canadian citizens. At the celebrations for the delivery of the Indian Residential Schools Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report, Chairperson Chief Wilton Littlechild of the Cree Nation explained how paying, playing hockey was imperative to his ability to endure the trauma of his residential school years. Jesus. For these and other reasons, hockey occupies an ambivalent space in relation to Indigenous sovereignty and ongoing settler colonialism in Canada. Hockey has been used as a tool for social engineering and has been accessed as a tool for liberation. It has been a way of denying indigenous rights and of asserting them. It has been employed as a means of whitewashing indigenous histories and as a means of embodying indigenous persistence. So, yeah. Oh, by the way, I just want to clarify that I'm not equating my immigrant story from earlier to this, just before anybody says anything. <laughs> um, that's something we but, don't yeah. hear about. Like, that's hockey is, and this is the part I find the most interesting is like, Hockey is such a sacred institution that, like, we never... I didn't know about um, its relationship to, like, residential schools and stuff until you told me, right? Like, the way we Canadians look at hockey and the way... Um, the way we look at, like, our, our markers of identity in general, right? Like, think, like, Vimy Ridge as a good example or, or stuff that we consider, like, formational to the idea of Canada cannot be assailed. And when someone does, they're dealt with very quickly, but the issue they represent is usually left up to the worst think piece writers. You can imagine like the Don Cherry thing is a really good example. where like Don Cherry broke kayfabe. Like his sin wasn't being a racist piece of shit. It was breaking kayfabe around like the culture of hockey. Um, and it's like, you broke character or like you, you let people into like the walled garden and now you have to pay for it. Right. It's the same thing with that Calgary flames coach who was like racist and abusive to his players. It's like, do you think this isn't endemic? Yeah, of course it is. But it's like the second you, you, you know, sort of get exposed for that. Like we're going to take you out, but we don't talk about like what specifically about this sport breeds these attitudes. Well, as we see, it's like, instilled in the dna of the fucking sport and we just don't talk about it and it's just this really suspicious strange omission that we just never discussed because we were we didn't even know um it was there i have some info on don cherry and the calgary frame flames incident that we can discuss later we'll see if we get into it with uh the episode is running but cruel irony too man like indigenous youth in canada now have to like suffer from racism in hockey leagues to this day and are often like not protected by refs and league administrators um i also was reading like most complaints in youth hockey of racial slurs and bullying of course made by indigenous fa families are either glossed over or just like brushed away with some kind of apology while physical bullying between white kids is treated completely differently well hockey hazing rituals and shit like that are are legendarily um insane right legendarily ugly and like you know just accepted i mean hazing in general is just accepted as a normal part of sports when it really shouldn't be <laughs> so we broke quite a bit of the like raw history of hockey and lacrosse before we get into the blatant displays of nationalism that sort of have played out throughout the 20th century and fucking in the 21st century we're gonna go to break so Stay tuned. These days, we are completely bombarded with video content, whether it's a series, movies, or documentaries about, I don't know, Carol Baskin and the Tiger King. That's the best documentary there is, right, guys? Screenworthy tries to cut through all this noise and talk about what it all means from a cultural standpoint and how it affects the future of filmmaking. Hosts Kyle Badanis and the Smart Alecky Mine Refinery creative team talk to content creators and filmmakers about the state of the industry while diving deep into noteworthy projects that arrive on your screen. Screenworthy drops every other Tuesday on the Mine Refinery podcast channel, wherever you get your podcasts. 
So we've just gone through the history of hockey. We've actually previewed some of the blatant uh, displays of nationalism uh, that are a bit more recent that we're going to be discussing on this episode. Um, but um, yeah, in uh, in simpler terms, hockey has kind of just been the one thing Canadians have been clearly better than Americans at, just in terms of our struggle with our culture war, living so close to the great big North uh, United States. Um it was also like a continued act as uh, of resistance against British hegemony when we're when we're countering American hegemony in this weird fucking fucked up way. Um, I love this quote that I found from an old news article about many Cana- uh, one of many Canadian victories over the Americans in the Olympics with hockey. Um, quote: "Victory for the industrious Canadian beaver over the mighty U.S. eagle." It reads like Nazi propaganda to me, <laughs> but like cute cute because it's a beaver instead of like the fucking eagle um but yeah the most documented example of canadian nationalism through hockey we have the famous 1972 games against the russian soviets which played out like a rocky and bullwinkle episode um i have a little a few excerpts from uh an article about the events it really summarizes how blindsided blindsided canada was by russia's excellence in these games and how we just kind of went on to the to assume that we're the best at hockey, like for no good reasons, just because we happen to not play these. Have you ever games. seen? Uh, sorry, have you ever seen that movie um, Red Army, the documentary about the sweatshop no, ha- for I- Soviet players? No, I haven't actually. It's no. fucking incredible. It's it's about it's interviews with the former Soviet players and like like Red Sparrow KGB style, like we will break you and rebuild you into the like Apollo <laughs> god of hockey players, like. So it's the rock, Rocky Four of hockey. Basically. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's I will highly recommend this documentary. It's so fucking good. Yeah, I mean, after I read this, if you happen to have never heard about this moment in history, um, I'm going to be watching this documentary. Um, but yeah, the political implications of the summit went beyond resistance to British and American rivalries. One such occasion was the 1972 summit series in which Canadian professional hockey players engaged in an eight-game series against the Soviet Union national hockey team. The event was a debacle, yet it is considered by many to be the greatest Canadian story ever told. The series was described as East meets West, communism versus capitalism. So, as the players rightfully admitted, it was no longer just about hockey. Reflecting on the series, Team Canada member Phil Esposito stated, it wasn't a game anymore. It was society against society. It wasn't fun. It was not fun. Um, The series was filled with incidents of extreme violence. One Canadian player, Bob Clark, following instructions from a coach, broke a Soviet player's ankle with his stick. Other incidents involved a Soviet referee nearly being attacked by a Canadian player, throat-slitting gestures, kicking with skates, fighting, and a melee fight with former NHL commissioner Alan Eagleson, the Soviet guard, and the entire Canadian hockey team. The event, which was advertised as an expression of goodwill between <laughs> nations, turned sour when the favorite Canadians were defeated in the initial games and obviously outclassed in terms of skill and sportsmanship. Canadian players were simply unaware of the tremendous abilities of the Soviets and were hence humiliated both on the ice by the Soviets and off the ice by an unforgiving Canadian public who lambasted them with jeers. I have just a little bit more. I apologize. Okay. In, resp- in response to the dire predicament, Canadian players resorted to bullying and, t- and intimidation tactics and literally fought their way back into contention. In a miraculous comeback, overcoming real and imagined barriers, uh, two American journalists described it as hacking and clubbing the Soviet players like seal pups and bullying their way to a thrill- thrilling and remarkable comeback. While there have been critics of the series, the games in the Canadian collective consciousness remain as an orgy of self-congratulation about the triumphs of Canadian virtues, individualism, flair, and most of all, uh, character. I wanted to get to that part (laughs) of the reading just because I love, I love the, this writer really hates fucking hockey too, which I I, appreciate. It's, yeah, like you got to give it to the Soviets and especially in hockey, but in most sports, like they engineered some of the greatest athletes of all time whose names we don't remember because they were soviets simply because like it was one of those arenas where they could just reliably understand that they could kick ass like these and like you got to give it to like the americans and the canadians that like the one time they did beat the soviets good for you but like this doesn't change the fact that (laughs) the 
Soviets kicked your ass with such deep frequency. But I, I know we gave George Beers a lot of airtime earlier, and I'm sorry, but we have to give the Quebecs, the Quebecers a little bit more airtime. I'm allowed to make that joke because my parents are the kind of Quebecer that like uh, Mordechai Richler is. So, you know, I'm, I'm technically I'm technically Quebec. But yeah, the, the apprenticeship of um, Anton Tobin. Exactly. Um, uh, another famous example of uh, sort of uh, of French to British resistance, uh, a show of that kind of nationalism in Canada, is the Richard, the Maurice Richard riots that we mentioned in Montreal, which we won't spend too much time on because there's also a movie about this fucking. Uh, there's a, ca- a Canadian movie about this incident called The that Rocket. That destroyed I a government, be- by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I believe it's on YouTube for free. Uh, don't I, I? I didn't. I didn't skim it before this episode just to get reminded about some information. Um, so don't. You didn't hear that from me. Support CanCon. Hell the yeah, thirty percent, um, baby. I'm, but um, do yeah. you get into the sponsorship scandal? Uh, to this of with we we can. I, I know a little bit about it, but if you can remind me. Okay, a bit. I can actually expand on this. The the scandal that that like took down the Paul Martin government was a sponsorship scandal, which was like, like in vague terms, it was corruption. But the, the big thing was related to the fucking Maurice Richard movie. Um, and right. I remember like growing up and seeing this on TV and the pearl clutching around, like how could you taint the legacy of our, of our movie about Maurice Richard <laughs> with this like scan? That was only like 2 million. It was like a very different time because this like mm-hmm. inconsequential scandal ended up, being in the news for months, if not years, and took, like, yeah, it literally took down the entire government. Just to briefly summarize, Maurice, the rocket Richard, accidentally became the symbol of resistance to Anglo domination in Quebec during the 1950s. If you happen to not have seen this fucking movie, again, it's on YouTube, claimed to just be a hockey player as this was happening. He, he was actually a prolific scorer in the NHL. His biggest accomplishment at the time was that he was the first player to tally 50 goals in a season, in a season which is pretty fucking wild. Um, in 1955, his passion got the best of him uh, when he stri- when he hit a linesman in Boston and injured him really badly. Um, hockey's Anglo boss of the time, Clarence Campbell, suspended him for the rest of the season, which included the Stanley Cup the Stanley Cup Finals, which led to the famous riots in Montreal outside of the Montreal Forum. The Rocket, as well as Commissioner Campbell, who suspended him, happened to both be attending a game between his Canadians against the Detroit Red Wings on March 17th, while protests were still happening outside the arena. Somebody ends up setting off a smoke bomb inside the building, and the Canadians have to forfeit the game as the arena is cleared. Montreal ended up actually losing to Detroit in the finals without Richard, but the next five seasons, the Rocket uh, won every Stanley Cup uh, with the help of his brother, who actually ended up joining the team. Um, So so at the same at the time Quebec business is at this time Quebec business is basically Anglo rule, right? So some Canadian historians believe the Richard suspension was the last straw in like the Quebec political realm and that the riots represent the beginning of the quiet revolution that we know now as Quebec separatism, which started to emerge in the nineteen sixties. And as we all know, Pierre Trudeau was elected in nineteen sixty eight and he, he fucking dealt with it, bro. <laughs> yeah, just just watch me. The fact that like again, like the fact that, you know, we basically have a, a cultural memory around like again, you go back to like stuff like Vimy, right? Stuff like um stuff like, you know, Canadian hockey games and, and other shit as like sacred institutions where we became a country. For some reason we were like legitimized as a as like a, a proper country that was like independent from the queen when our prime minister declared martial law. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean like people, people talk about that moment in glowing terms as if it's not fucked up that our prime minister declared martial law and then drove tanks into Quebec because of a, a fringe cell of Quebec separatists doing an act of terrorism. Right? Like it's incredibly fucked up. But yeah, like the the Quebec angle is really interesting because um like I have a friend at work who who's an Italian gentleman who grew up like very working class. He, he grew up in the era of Maurice Richard, like very working class in Quebec, like Italian French, right? And he was like A, he's he hates how the game is like extremely expensive for kids to get into because you could just go buy a stick for fifty cents at the store and then play hockey on ice right yeah like now, anywhere. now sticks are like 50 fucking dollars at more check more, more like the carbon fiber sticks uh, last half as long and are 
significantly more expensive. Like I have another coworker who whose son is probably going to go pro. Goalie pads every year for his kid. He's a goalie are around two thousand to twenty five hundred bucks. Like and that's I think the two thousand was used. But like yeah, he was talking about like the the only way the Italian kid and he's he's a big guy who's like you know Italians were once considered the the blacks of Montreal. <laughs> but like um but like you know uh the only way he they could really like assert themselves against like you know sort of the more traditional Quebecers or whatever was either through fighting or hockey and i think that that is really like just a very interesting part of like canadian i guess ethnic like historic historic ethnicity is like that montreal turf war is based on like hockey and shit like that among kids i guess it it kind of makes sense that our national sports is deeply tied with one of the most like blatant like one of the most canadian one of the most prominent historical moments in Canada that isn't based off colonialism. There was actually something happening within the country and within the political realm that we had created within this country outside of Victorian rule that had that was directly connected to hockey, which I, I think, what the, as you guys will see as we finish up the episode, the whole point of this episode is to prove that, yes, hockey is extremely Canadian, but obvious but to a fault as in most all the displays worst ways na- yeah as most displays of nationalism or using sport as an apparatus for nationalism and speaking of vimy ridge and what i just fucking said let's talk about donnie don fucking cherry remember when uh, the cbc made like a a top 10 list for number six to vote baby on? yeah and he was number six did he beat the insulin guy or was he just like both behind ins- him did, i think he beat the insulin guy one, he bit, one he second beat mr insulin greatest canadians <laughs> which by the way i'm i'm disrespecting him obviously by calling um, him mr insulin we are eventually going to do an episode just on don cherry by the way i think that's yeah. worth mentioning because like do you think we should do that so maybe i'll skip over some of these instances I probably because i want to read his books i want to read okay. like his books and actually like pull quotes from them and be like this person is the sixth nope 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 sorry he is seven seven so i will read you the list of greatest canadians and oh you can tell me if Don Cherry is in the not not that he doesn't belong on this list because genuinely when we think of great we tend to think of great in a good way uh, rather than the greatest example of what it means to traditionally be Canadian for better or particularly for which, worse right which by the way maybe before the list just really quickly Don Cherry for those who don't know is a Canadian ice hockey commentator he's also a sports writer he's a retired professional hockey player and an NHL coach he played one game neighbor, with the Boston the Bru- he played one game with the Boston Bruins one <laughs> game and then later coached the team for five seasons uh by the way for the fucking AHL again for the Bought for a Boston team from 1986 to 2019. Cherry co-hosted Coach's Corner, a segment aired during CBC Saturday Night NHL broadcast uh, with Ron McLean. He is nicknamed Grapes for his outspoken manner and opinions and his flamboyant dress. That's that's who Don Cherry is. Where is he on the list of greatest Canari- Canadians in By relation the way, to who? I, uh, I grew up very close to Don Cherry. I would see him at Fabricland all the time growing up. Uh, buying, uh, uh, getting his getting his suit material. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> What yeah. a dumb joke, I'm sorry. No, that's exactly what he was doing. Because he's known okay. oh, for those who, Yeah, no, what he a was fucking psycho. <laughs> yeah, he was at Fabricland, like finding patterns and shit. Like we would see him all the fucking time. Like because my mom I assume would go this there. is how yeah. Buffalo Bill gets dressed for a fucking <laughs> wedding. You for know those I mean? who don't know, he wears the most insane suits. Like just Google Don Cherry right now, uh, if you're listening. But okay, so our our ten greatest Canadians, by the way, this list at like if it was created today, because this is from 2004. It would, have, it would have Grimes and Drake on it. It would have Grimes and Drake, and um, who's that dude? Who's the People's Party of Canada? It would have Maxine Bernier oh at number God. one. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... Yeah, he's um, got the internet effort. Yeah, uh, it is... Let's take a look. Um, number one, Tommy Douglas, father of Medicare. Number two, Terry Fox, who I found out no one ever thinks about outside of Canada. <laughs> um Pierre Trudeau, who declared martial law on, yeah, in Canada. Just yeah, and two has two fail sons, uh, one of whom is our current prime minister. <laughs> Sir Frederick Banting, perhaps one of the only good people on this list. He he discovered insulin, uh, licensed it for free to the University of Toronto so that everyone could have access and it wouldn't be for profit. 
And uh, now pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. are charging 600 people for a month of life-saving medication. David Suzuki, who has somehow become the most hated person in this country uh, by the time this came out. Lester B. Pearson, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for, um, I know, he did some sort of uh, peacekeeping mission. He was like a big guy in the blue helmets. Uh, Almost definitely part of some deeper conspiracy theories we won't get into. Uh, number seven, Don Cherry, hockey coach and commentator from Kingston, Ontario. Yeah, um, and he, yeah, he is number seven, which means he comes ahead of Sir John A. Macdonald, our genocidal alcoholic first prime minister and founder of this country. Yeah, I mean, like, aside from those, you know, those little stains on his record that you just mentioned, he fucking started the country and didn't play for the Boston Bruins, but anyways. <laughs> didn't, didn't place ahead of the <laughs> hockey guy. Yeah. Uh, number nine is Alexander Graham Bell, who invented, did not actually invent the telephone. He yeah, stole yeah. the telephone <laughs> and then founded a mega corporation that, like, currently mm. rips people off for ISP rates. And number 10 is Wayne Gretzky, who's an insane... Right-wing yeah. nut uh, and won, I guess, a couple of Stanley Cups in an era where <laughs> it was easier to win Stanley Cups in, like, dynasties. Uh, also, RIP to his bar in downtown Toronto. COVID, COVID got a real one uh, yeah. with that one. Uh, really sorry to Gretzky. But, um, yeah, so Cherry... This Cherry, sucks, Cherry, by the way. I yeah, just want out. Uh, but, but uh, basically... What we're trying to illustrate here is people seem to really like Don Cherry in this fucking country for some reason. Um, so there's clearly, there's clearly something about him and the things that he says on TV that people like. What has he said on TV? Cherry has sometimes proven controversial for making political comments during his show Coach's Corner, having faced criticism for remarks regarding Canada's lack of support for the 2003 invasion of Iraq insinuating that only European and French guys wore visors on their helmets and denying climate change. In November 2019, Cherry was fired by Sportsnet from Hockey Night in Canada for comments that suggested Canadian immigrants benefit from the sacrifices of veterans but do not wear Remembrance Day poppies. Do you want to talk about the poppies first or some of these weird incidents that I'd never heard of? Yeah, like Canadians wear poppies on Remembrance Day to remember the dead. and It's like a lightning rod for right-wing discourse. Like the left wants to take away the poppy and says, fuck the veterans, which is like no one gives a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, but it becomes a big thing if you don't wear a poppy, especially if you're like a high profile public figure. But like, again, going back to like when the wildcat strikes happened, uh, over the NBA bubble, like the NBA obviously shut down and then the MLB followed suit, but the NHL would not. The NHL basically did it to fall in line with all the other sports, uh, MLS, uh, MLB, and the NBA uh, a day after, actually. So it's like, it's worth thinking about that in the context of stuff like this. Like hockey, both because of its like history as a white sport, right, that didn't emerge. A, hockey didn't emerge out of like black culture and like you know inner cities the way basketball did and hockey actually basically drummed out any potential jackie robinson figure like there were a couple of indigenous players in the 1920s and 30s who were victims of racism the first asian player larry kwong played Mm. two games and then was demoted to the minor leagues because he was asian like they he was a very good player jeez they just wouldn't no one would let him play because like we can't have an Asian on the ice. Right. So it's like, yeah, like hockey never had a Jackie Robinson figure quite intentionally and quite specifically in Canada. Isn't this like very unique space to leverage the fact that like we had slavery, slavery and a lot earlier than the U S and like a different relationship with like blackness. It's still violent. Right. But not in the public perception. So that, like, hockey still is, like, a white-dominated sport. And then, like, in the 80s and 90s, it also became much more expensive for people from lower incomes to access, right? It was no longer, like, a working-class sport in, like, Montreal neighborhoods and shit. It became, like, a very... You need to wake up at... Like, again, I have coworkers who wake up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. to drive their kids to hockey practice or to games, Mm -hmm. spend thousands a year on shit, right? Like, so, yeah, like, that it's unsurprising the Don Cherry thing, but like he just, he just went mask off for something that like it literally exists within the DNA of this game very deeply. Even look at the way he treated, uh, what's his face. Who's that? Um, PK Subin mm, who, yeah. who should be the model of a player Don Cherry 
loves like scrappy young guy willing but but don cherry kept talking about he didn't have any class so and pk suvin is a black hockey player by the way mm-hmm. like it's it's a lot of this coded shit right he finally just took it a step too far he uh yeah and i mean he as i had mentioned there was this like visor controversy where he was saying that the european and french players are the only one advocating for visors to be mandatory in hockey he comes from this era where you would call like i was saying you would call the fucking you the french people and the italians playing in the league ethnic minorities and equate them to the black people playing in um the league by the way just speaking of hockey's price tag do you want me to read this like some numbers that people have uh, yes, mentioned please. um hockey isn't just exclusionary in terms of race and gender it's also prohibitively expensive global news pegged the cost of playing in greater toronto hockey league at almost 5500 per season um, compared that with elite level soccer nearby Oakville, which costs about $1,500 and drops just over, over $500 for players in the in-house league level at the North Toronto Soccer Club. And unlike, and unlike with sports with, such as football or soccer, children must start playing hockey at a very young age to have hopes of playing in the big leagues when they're older. In reality, far from being a sport of Canada's middle class, hockey is much more associated with people who have disposable income. With more than one-third of Canadians living in regions where lakes don't get cold enough to skate on in the winter, it's even less likely that young people will have a chance to learn to skate for free. Don Cherry has a podcast now, and yeah. it uh, sucks ass. Um, I haven't listened to it, but I'm looking at the descriptions of the episodes. It's like... But we we will be for our Don Cherry episode I, next season. Honestly, season two will open with the Don Cherry episode. <laughs> They're 25-minute episodes, yeah. and I have all his books because as a kid... like As a kid, you also love Don Cherry because he's a loud funny guy in the funny suit on tv well, right yeah you don't hear what he's saying when i moved when i moved here that's who i was introduced to it was literally like canada's door open and they're like meet your new uh, your favorite uncle don cherry like because i just had to ask when i saw this man was on on tv who the fuck is he and why are you guys all listening to this man <laughs> yeah like i i totally get that it's like i'm sure there's a photo of me with don cherry and like one of my parents like things or something like that i'm a hundred percent sure um as a kid but like yeah bro don don Shelley was willing to take a photo with you and your family <laughs> you're one of you're one of the good ones he gives you like a pat on the head yeah uh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and he puts a he, he he puts a poppy on your on your shirt for you now don't be don't be a packy now <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah like you yep. know and there's there's so much in like hockey that's like easy to like sports in general is like a instrument of like cold war era politics and the role in the fall of the soviet union and like hockey specifically because hockey was was one of the big more than soccer actually for some reason the russians never exceeded at soccer i guess you couldn't compete with like Mm -hmm. european and especially latin american leagues right but like hockey specifically uh and track and stuff like that were the were the linchpin of like cold war dominance um and like the fact that the u.s finally started like championing black athletes because their capacity to beat the russians um in track whereas like you know any time the u.s beat the soviets at hockey it was considered like a blow to the infrastructure of communism which it was the u.s propaganda machine was much more effective uh, than the soviet one i think also part of don cherry's just just why Don Cherry was I think some people took to liking him over the years and also appreciated his latest uh outburst. It's it's very um it, I, I think people are starting to flail a bit in Canada about hockey because it's also being reclaimed by Americans when you really think about it, right? The other thing I'll sort of mention around this is I think that in the next couple of years you're going to start seeing hockey become more of a culture war thing than it already is, which it has been basically since the time we were born. But um, Gary Bettman, who's the current commissioner of the NHL, famously does not like the idea of Canadian expansion teams. And there will be the sort of idea that like Canadians are losing hockey and it's not going to be because of what you mentioned, Aton, which is like the the US is just better at sports and has more people. It's It'll be because like immigrants aren't playing hockey and like our our intrinsic culture is being destroyed right the poppy discourse actually speaks to like a i think a greater existential anxiety around like white canada feeling like they're going to lose 
the idea of uh, like mm-hmm. what makes them whole, right? The sport that that represents them acutely in this like very keen way. Even at the um, Alberta press conference, COVID press conference, the day before we recorded this, one of the first questions when we found out we had the highest case count in Canada and the highest confirmation rate in Canada of tests was, is the World Juniors game still on? <laughs> Which, by the way, was put on pause due to COVID at the fucking camp. I mean, let me let me read this from the Washington Post, titled, Why Canada's Hockey Culture Shouldn't Be a Standard for Its Identity. Um, it plays in exactly what you're saying. When, when Cherry blamed immigrants for not wearing poppies during Remembrance Day, calling them, quote, you people, he may as well have been talking to immigrant parents who are less likely to enroll their kids in hockey programs. In one survey, Sport, Sportsnet asked Canadians whether they could skate backwards, a fair hockey proxy. Only 19% of immigrants can. Among first-generation Canadians, that rate stands at 41%, only slightly lower than apparently hockey-averse millennial cohorts, 43%. Overall, about half of Canadians say that they can skate backwards, but there's a rub. For many Canadians, hockey isn't simply a sport, but a stand-in in the market for true Canadian identity. In 2011, poll 70%, 77% of Canadians said that hockey is an important national symbol. Either you play hockey or you don't. Either you skate or you don't. Either you're considered Canadian or you're not. Or as Cherry said, quote, you people. What can you think of off the top of your head that is like considered an essential part of the Canadian identity? I mean, it's it, the only thing I can even think of, but I know that it's not based in a real reality. It's an imagined reality based in our ideology, which is this like national pacifism that we supposedly have. And I just know that isn't true because I know that we have mining <laughs> operations in other like fucking countries. Like healthcare is you know the I mean? only thing I can think of, but even that's like not like our healthcare system is is yeah. better than the worst country in the world's healthcare, like private healthcare system, right? Like. As long as we discuss to the privatization of healthcare in this in this country as a possibility and as something that we could actually change to, it isn't a part of an identity. It's clearly something. Yeah, that and is I partisan. think like that's that's a good point to sort of maybe leave it on where we like I think the the core of this is like hockey was essential to the project of like Canadian nation building and uh, everything that comes with that. Most like ninety nine percent of it bad. But, like, the future of hockey um, is disappearing very rapidly, and, like, it it goes part and parcel with this existential threat to, like, white Canada around the sort of failure of of its ability to, like, reproduce itself in a society that is, like, becoming more diverse. Maybe we'll do a a hockey sort of mini-series as well, because we we mentioned some moments of it, but some of the... um, uh, uh, some of the Black Lives Matter protesting over the summer really um, encapsulated the problem of race representation in hockey. Um, a lot of choice quotes were made by black hockey players this summer. Hockey as a form of class reproduction uh, is also like very well worth getting into, which we won't get into here because this is just about the racism, baby. But like, it is the most gated sport in terms of like, uh, being able to like afford it of the like any of the big team sports i mean with that go out there uh put them you know put that sell your mortgage so you can fucking put your kid through hockey just so that they can be the canadian that you always wanted him to because you spent all of your life savings moving from probably a war-ridden country to here we now want you to use those savings just so you can put your little brown kid on skates and with that we will leave you we will be back at you next week with uh the anti-hockey video games <laughs> and yeah no yes. hope you guys have a great week hope this was informative and we're looking forward to talking to you about super smash brothers this was the off-court podcast thank you so much